Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? We're watching. Time for chill vibes. Beach yoga. How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants, indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Citizen Chef is a production of iHeartRadio. Hi, I'm Tom Colicchio, and you're listening to Citizen Chef. So this week on our podcast, I'm talking to Congressman Earl Blumenauer. He represents Portland, Oregon. And, you know, we talk about a lot of different things, uh, ranging from food policy, uh, the farm bill, school lunch. But we also talk about the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. Earl Blumenauer wrote the bill in the House. And since the bill, uh, there's been a, a lot of sort of misunderstanding and, and sort of misinformation swirling around those interwebs out there. So obviously, when we wrote the bill, um, we wanted to take care of people who typically are marginalized. And so the bill was written where women, minority and veteran owned businesses got first crack at the funding. Okay, so after the applications were accepted, there was a two week period, I think it was two weeks where uh, the only applications that were uh, funded were those from minority owned, women owned and veteran owned businesses. Well, a couple weeks into the funding process, there was a lawsuit. The SBA, the Small Business Administration that was administering the program, uh, they were sued, uh, saying that they couldn't priority prioritize these groups. And the lawsuit was successful. And there were people who received phone calls saying that, yes, you were going to get funded, but now we have to pull it back. So a couple weeks into it, some of the priority applicants were told that, yes, they were going to be funded. And then the SBA actually had to rescind that because of this lawsuit. We tried to fight the lawsuit, the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Uh, We didn't have standing, uh, couldn't do it. Now, we're hearing stories from people who thought they were going to receive a grant and then the money got pulled back and they started spending money and, and it's, it's, it's horrible. And that's what we're still fighting to make sure that those people get funding. Also, listen, you could get your information from your social media feeds and there's, again, a lot of, a lot of misinformation out there. Or you could just go to the SBA site. And actually see the data. I mean, the, the Independent Restaurant Coalition actually put in a FOIA request. 
But you can go right to the SBA website, download all the information you want. And I'll put out some more information. Um, you know, 85,406 businesses from urban areas received relief. 15,598 businesses from rural areas received relief. There's tons of information. Again, we could focus on individuals, Michelin-starred restaurants, you know, that received money. That's fine. Or we could focus on where the bulk of the money went to. And we have a long way to go. And what we need right now are all voices in the restaurant industry to, to, to make sure that Congress knows that we still have a long way to go. There is another bill that is hopefully working its way through Congress as well right now, both in the Senate and the House, that will add $60 billion to the Restaurant Revitalization Fund. That $60 billion will cover every single application that is currently at the SBA, and that the $60 billion will make everyone whole. That's where we need to, fo- to focus our efforts right now. Anything short of that is not helping. So with that, this interview was about four weeks ago with Congressman Blumenauer, but so much of what we discussed then is pertinent to where we are right now. And then once we get through the Restaurant Revitalization Fund, uh, we get into food policy. So I I hope you enjoy it. So let's bring in Congressman Blumenauer. Earl Blumenauer, welcome to the Citizen Chef Podcast. I've been looking forward to this conversation, Tom. Yeah, well, we've we've had many conversations over the years, and uh, you know, there, there's a lot that I want to cover today. Uh, so this season, uh, we're we're talking uh, directly, you know, to lawmakers, uh, people who are involved in making food, preparing food, but also people who are uh, involved in creating legislation around food. And there's there's so much that I want to cover. Um, want to get into a little bit about Portland passing the psilocybin, uh, legalizing psilocybin. Um, I know that was a, a local law, but I'm sure you have some, you can opine on that. Um, and uh, really want to focus in on the Green New Deal. These are the two things that I think that you're, you're expert at, uh, the environment and food and the cross-section between the two. And so I want to talk a little bit about food, um, farming, and the Green New Deal. And obviously, want to talk Restaurant Act. That's where we'll start. And going back to uh, the early days of the pandemic, March, uh, I think, 13th, uh, restaurants, at least in New York, were forced to close. Uh, restaurants in Portland, I'm not sure if they were already closed, but you were already working with a bunch of local chefs and restaurateurs in Portland uh, to try to get them help. Uh, way before the Independent Restaurant Coalition was formed, when, when did you realize the, the position that restaurants were in and they needed help? How, what alerted you to this? Well, uh, it's the communication with the local restaurant uh, leadership. I mean, these people, as you know, from your own experience in Portland, they're a a passionate group, they're creative, they're hardworking, uh, and they were just being hammered. Um, We weren't able to be able to take advantage of the PPP program that uh, uh, when restaurants uh, didn't even know if they were going to be in business in eight or 10 weeks, let alone taking on more debt. Uh, We started the conversation right away, thinking about what might happen. They were terrific in terms of brainstorming. It quickly led to a broader conversation uh, with your colleagues around the country. It's been one of the most rewarding experiences that I had. And it was uh, a, a great pleasure for me to watch our people understand, roll up their sleeves, and be serious about what would make a difference for them. We were constantly, you know, on TV, on the news, working the phones. Uh, but there was a whole education process. I mean, you adapted very quickly, understood this you know, right from the bat. But how difficult was it to get your colleagues on, on both sides of the aisle on board? Well, part of our problem was that there was an avalanche of need, a lot of bad news. We were struggling with the beginning of the pandemic, uh, lots of uncertainty. It was hard to cut through 
uh, all that cluttered. Uh, but I'll, I'll tell you, when the IRC, the Independent Restaurant Coalition, uh, galvanized around some very specific items that would make a difference in such a relentless way, uh, we started to get through. Uh, it is a compelling story. And at a time when we were overwhelmed by a lot of bad news with the pandemic, there were challenges galore. Uh, there are political problems back here. Uh, but there was a certain clarity when it came to protecting our local restaurant scene. Uh, there is such a connection that people have uh, with their local diner or their restaurant or the people they know who provide the leadership that it cut through that clutter. Uh, there was a clarity, uh, unlike any that I saw with any of the other issues regarding the pandemic. Uh, and that, that made a difference in terms of being able to uh, have a specific proposal, having that focus and starting the relentless effort of signing up the leadership to join us uh, which you, of course, were a key part of. We had plenty, plenty of help. Um, I mean, this was truly a bipartisan effort, and, and often, you know, we don't see it. Obviously, if you follow the news, follow politics at all, um, you know that things just are, are at a standstill because both sides just can't seem to agree on anything. And this was one issue where, where both sides came together. What do you attribute that to? Well, part of it is that how essential uh, the restaurant industry is for every community. I mean, this is the first job for a lot of people. Uh, it's the, the, the easy access that is so real for so many people. Part of the problem is that there was difficulty in getting people to uh, align in paying for it. But in terms of the need, in terms of what difference the restaurants made and the affinity, people really believe uh, in their restaurant community. Uh, and that made a big difference. So we were able to get bipartisan support in the center. Roger Wicker, God love him, was was there uh, from the beginning. Um, Chuck Schumer uh, uh, was uh, a very aggressive leader. Uh, having Nancy Pelosi uh, make a commitment early, uh, she carved out uh, at a time when we were cutting back on the size of some of the rescue packages, she carved out space for $120 billion uh, in the house version. Uh, and so those those elements uh, really came together and reinforced one another. And we were able to uh, keep it in the package. And uh, I think it puts us in a position where we can work to replenish the fund going forward. Anytime you have uh, uh, John Corn and, and Elizabeth Warren on, on the same side of an issue, um, you, you know you have bipartisan support. Um, and that's what was really amazing to see how everybody came around and, and they understood it. This just became a, a nonpartisan issue, really. This became an issue of communities, uh, even farmers and uh, you know winemakers. And so if you were a, re a region where you had small farmers that supply restaurants, uh, you understood this. If you were in a wine growing region, if you were, uh, you know, but even your local plumber and electricians, those are all part of the restaurant community, and those are all people who, who really benefited from this. That's a very powerful point. The supply chain is, what, a trillion dollars? Uh, and it is the, the plumber, the electrician, it's the, the people who provide the linens, uh, as well as the ancillary services. Uh, and there's real power uh, in understanding the strength and the depth of that supply chain. Right, right. Now, one of the key features of of the Restaurant Act, which became the Restaurant Revitalization uh, 
fund. Uh, and, and this was by design, was that minorities and women-owned businesses and veterans were actually get first crack uh, at the money, the $28.6 billion that was funded. Right. And now we see the SBA is under attack right now by, by a few different people, a few different lawsuits, um, because they think that some people think it was unfair that that we singled out those particular groups um, first. What I find very interesting is often you, you know you hear about minorities getting up first, but I don't hear anybody complaining about veterans. <laughs> you know, but the the SBA is 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 in a tough position right now. Um, I think the, the listeners need to understand that that obviously yes, there's the restaurants are picking up. Um, stories are being written about restaurants coming back, um, but but this this. Bill and this money isn't necessarily going to end up in pockets of restaurateurs and things like that. Number one, there are provisions uh, uh, in this bill that actually I think are, are, are really elegant. Um, number one, it's it's a, a loan. It starts off as a loan, but you have to use that money by date certain and for qualified expenses or you have to return the money. But also, as busy as we are, as busy as the press wants us to, to make it out right now, two months of, of revenue, of good revenue, is not going to make up for 15 months of almost no revenue. And so, you know, just me personally, I'm still, I have, my, my landlords have been working with me, but they're not forgiving my rent. They're just <laughs> deferring it. Um, I still I still need to pay them. So, and there are so many, you know, chefs and restaurateurs across the country that are in that same position. Also, we've had people, uh, and, I, and the conversations I've had uh, with the industry around the country, there are people, you know, who rated their retirement funds, you know, that they that they've had to put a lot of capital putting themselves at risk. And also, you know firsthand, it's more expensive in this climate. There is, uh, in terms of staffing, in terms of cleanliness, in terms of operation. So it's, uh, there are people that have taken a beating. There are people that have had to raid the piggy bank. There are people that have higher costs. So I think uh, this money is just sort of helping them normalize uh, and deal with the extra costs strain and expenses uh, in this COVID climate. I think we still have a long way to go with or without funding. We have a long, long way to go to, to, to get on the other side of this pandemic. Uh, restaurants to the, are still closing. Um, so it's, it's been a tough environment. And, and this is something that we really hope to be able to work with you in the industry, trying to illustrate uh, that this is a lifeline, uh, but it'll help them negotiate what's going to be uh, the new normal for another year. Uh, on everything from uh, workforce issues to cleanliness to hours of operation. Sure. Uh, that's, uh, I think it illustrates the need, but I think it helps us build the momentum that people start to understand that we're not through this and that people really need this help. Mm -hmm. We'll be back with more Citizen Chef. Ready? Let's go. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a golf course. 70 courses. Let's get a water sport. Can I get excursions? Time for chill vibes. Beach How about a garden tour? Give me a dolphin. What's that spell? San Diego. If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your trip at san diego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to 
to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global. Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Let's get back into my discussion with Congressman Earl Blumenauer of Oregon. So let, let's move for a second to um, the, the work that you did when you were on. You're no longer on the Act Committee, right? Uh, but I think your heart's still there. Would people hear about the Green New Deal, the amount of, of uh, carbon emissions that food production causes, how the two could really come together so we could obviously produce food in a, in a way that's less harmful to the environment? Where do you see those, the, the intersection between food and the Green New Deal? I think too few people recognize the enormous carbon footprint that modern agriculture has. Uh, The industrial version of agriculture is very carbon intense, a very petrochemical intense, lots of uh, emissions, uh, water pollution. Uh, Being able to to deal in a more sustainable basis uh, in terms of different ways of growing food, uh, in terms of uh, non-industrial meat production, which is huge, Um, the health implications for uh, being able to have a healthy diet. It's health, it's carbon and climate, it is the economic uh, vision. Uh, I have been excited that people understand what we can do with regenerative agriculture. Explain that, regenerative agriculture. Uh, The notion here is uh, having uh, what we would say is traditional agriculture, the way that farming used to occur. Animals actually were in a pasture. Uh, they, they were fed uh, scraps. They, uh, the, the fertilizer uh, from uh, manure and animal waste was reincorporated into the farm, a natural fertilization, not chemical. There was and is a symmetry for people who engage in this type of uh, regenerative agriculture. They care about the health of soil. Um, and these are our concepts that are as old as human settlement and agriculture, but we're now rediscovering the power of these concepts. It also adds value to the products. If you have a healthy soil that you're not spending so much on chemical inputs, you're you're not uh, disrupting the soil, releasing carbon, things like cover crops, 
make it more productive. It's an entirely different uh, mindset, uh, and it is one that is sustainable. Uh, it is one that uh, has much less carbon input, and it has greater satisfaction, I think, for the people who practice it. In the next farm bill, are, are there incentives that, that you see uh, that can be given to farmers that are practicing regenerative uh, methods of farming? Sequestering carbon, uh, obviously, is, is a big one. What can we do to incentivize farmers to, to uh, you know, practice uh, regenerative agriculture? Well, first and foremost, we need to reduce the amount of subsidization for the industrial agricultural model. We put so much money into trying to have confined animal feedlots. These uh, are extraordinarily destructive for communities when you have uh, huge amounts of animals crammed together, producing uh, a significant amount of waste, uh, the methane that comes from uh, the cattle, the hog lagoons. We need to stop subsidizing that industrial meat production. We need to be able to provide support for people who are producing fruits and vegetables. Uh, they don't, uh, there are programs for environmental protection, but they are not performance-based. So they, 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 do, they are not targeted for people that are actually strengthening soil health and reducing uh, pollution and carbon. Uh, that's a change that needs to take place. We watched in terms of the trade war that uh, Donald Trump had, there are tens of billions of dollars that flowed uh, to large agricultural producers. And you mentioned crop insurance. Uh, there, there are people who get paid to plant crops they know will fail. But your suppliers of fruits and vegetables, people who are producing it on a sustainable basis, they don't get that degree of support. Right. It's it's almost impossible for a fruit and vegetable farmer to get the crop insurance subsidies. They're just not available, especially a small farmer. Right. So what we what we want to do is to be able to provide subsidy for what people are doing in terms of reducing their carbon footprint, protecting water and air quality, uh, subsidize what we want and allow them to compete in the marketplace without undue subsidies for the big industrial farming operation. If we level that playing field, I think that's an important step forward. There's also work that we can do in, for helping beginning farmers. Uh, you shouldn't have to you know, be some huge mega industrial farm. There's lots, as you know, of young people who want to get into this business, being able to protect farmland itself, uh, buying up and subsidizing development rights, for people who are, want to keep that farm in farm production forever, let's pay them to keep it in production forever. And, and so do you see working through already established land trusts to, to do that? Because out here, I'm out in um, the North Fork of Long Island, which is actually a, a farming community. Um, and uh, traditionally, it was uh, cauliflower, broccoli, potatoes, hops a long time ago. Uh, and now more and more, we're seeing more um, some animals uh, being produced. Uh, we're also seeing it's a lot of wine out here. But what we're seeing is that a lot of young farmers, you're right, they can't find the capital to either buy property. And so what you're seeing is a lot of wealthy people buying up land and they do farm it. They'll bring a farm around to farm it, but they're farming a small amount of it. Right. Um, but it's only for the wealthy that can actually become gentlemen farmers. Right. You don't see a lot of young people and you do see a lot of family farms being sold off because the kids don't want to farm anymore. They don't see a future in it. And so do you see working through existing land trusts or creating new land trusts to, to, for that vehicle? All of the above, Tom, because there is a lot of farmland now 
And if people think about it, they don't want it to be subdivided. They do want to protect it. There are a number of people that will accept payment to be able to protect this land forever. Uh, land trusts are a tremendous tool. Uh, there are other areas in terms of being able to, uh, you know, in, in uh, uh, Iowa, uh, most of the farms are uh, owned by uh, elderly women who are widows. Right. Uh, and, they, and they sort of rent it out. There are opportunities to be able to help them and their children and grandchildren. Uh, I mentioned being able to buy up development life, have conservation easements. These are tools that in many cases have been pioneered by the land trust. So we have the Peconic Land Trust out here and I was introduced to them. We, we bought this house about 20 years ago. And uh, at the closing, I was charged, I think three and a half percent for the land trust. And it's oh, really? Oh yeah, yeah. At the closing, yeah, they tax you from the closing and that goes into the land trust and the land trust does exactly that. They buy up development rights. Cool. And so if you have a, a 40 acre farm, you sell development rights and they sell usually for about a hundred years. And this way you get the, that capital to put into the farm. Uh, you can't develop it. So you can't build homes on it. Um, and, uh, the, the Peconic Land Trust has done a great job out here. But yeah, I was, and at first, at, at the closing, I was like, well, that seems pretty pretty unfair. But then I thought about it after about 10 minutes and, and realized what they did. I was like, wow, this is this is one way to do it in terms of keeping these farming communities intact. And, and what we're seeing is that there's greater appreciation for the ability to grow crops virtually anywhere. I mean, we've got people in, in New York City that are doing hydrophonic uh, farming. There's urban agriculture in Detroit, in Chicago, in New York. There's reclaiming land. I am quite confident that uh, if we had the right array of subsidies and incentives, uh, that we can stop the erosion of the land base. Uh, we can add to it, make it more productive. You know, a, and as you know very well, people can take a couple of acres and produce a tremendous amount of high quality fruits and vegetables uh, that add uh, so much value to the equation. I, I remember the, the very first field trip I had dealing with agricultural issues was with uh, Tammy Baldwin in Madison. Tammy Baldwin was a, a senator from, from Wisconsin. Yeah. And this was when she was first running for, for the house. And there was an iconic restaurant in Madison, uh, Piper Odessa or Odessa Piper. And it was, they, they brought these people in. And Tom, I, I was stunned. There was a, somebody who had a two-acre uh, hoop hut production for spinach. Mm -hmm. um, and there was uh, a dish prepared. It, it didn't even taste like spinach. And it lasts longer. There's less waste. Uh, they get more value. I mean, these are things that using the restaurant power of the people who really understand food and how to prepare it and how to appreciate it. I think there's so much more value that can be coaxed out. And that should be part of the new farm bill and a new vision for American agriculture that's much more inclusive. Last episode, we had a, a, a woman chef who started the first cannabis cafe in, in Los Angeles. Um, where, where do you see uh, the, the role of cannabis has? Obviously, it has a role to play in both agriculture and, and food. Where do, where do you see the, the two fitting in? Well, I have uh, witnessed the emergence of uh, people who uh, combine their culinary skills with cannabis. There have been uh, curated dinners where there are uh, cannabis products that are a part of this. 
cannabis-infused pastries. Um, in the Pacific Northwest, we're uh, quite proud of our uh, wine industry. I think uh, uh, we're going to have uh, cannabis tourism. Uh, and if it's done right and done carefully, um, I think there's a, uh, there's a tremendous potential. And I, uh, there's a, a local chef who's been uh, in Portland who's been uh, involved in this for a, a number of years. I think it just, I think it's going to grow. Uh, I think it, it ties various people's passions. And it's, uh, I think it has a, a tremendous uh, potential to add value to that sort of experience. We actually passed uh, a piece of legislation, we called it the Moore Act in the House, which would have completely legalized. We passed legislation, we called it the Safe Banking Act. It's insane that state legal marijuana businesses can't have access to normal banking services. And let's be clear, some of these, these are publicly traded companies. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. This, this year, it's going to be a, about a $20 billion industry. It's going to have over 350,000 people who are employed. Uh, and as you mentioned, uh, well, it's 98% of the American public has access to some form of state legal cannabis. We got these things passed. They uh, got stuck in uh, Mitch McConnell's uh, hospice program in the Senate to die. But this Congress, uh, we have Chuck Schumer, Cory Booker, and Ron Wyden in the Senate who are helping lead the charge. So this stuff is not going to get bottled up. We've already passed the Safe Banking Act again in this Congress. Uh, so I think the federal government is positioned. Now, part of the problem is that it's the politics are complex. Uh, and part of what we need to do is atone for the rank discrimination in terms of uh, the selective enforcement of prohibition, uh, particularly against people of color. We helped destroy a million young black men's lives uh, because of this. So we've, we've got a lot of uh, energy and interest in racial restorative justice. Uh, but these pieces are coming together. Uh, I'm cautiously optimistic that this might be the session of Congress that we've finally solved this once and for all. Legalizing marijuana can really help with the opioid crisis that, that we still have in this country. I, I can tell you from personal experience, I had I had neck surgery and um, uh, started taking opioids for pain and um, started getting into a really dark place. And partly because, uh, I'll, I'll be honest, partly because, you know, drug experience I had when I was, uh, you know, a young adult, um, I saw the where I was heading and very quickly got myself off opioids, but only was able to deal with the pain through using cannabis. Um, and so, for, you know, it worked firsthand. Do we see, is, is it, are big pharmaceuticals pushing against the legalization of, 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 uh, of cannabis? Who, who's funding this? We have seen some pharmaceutical opposition, for example, uh, a campaign in Arizona a couple of years ago, there was a pharmaceutical giant that weighed in. It basically uh, does not have a real strong opposition anymore. This is kind of the opposition is melted away in part because the public support is overwhelming. More than two to one uh, adults support full legalization. And if you're talking about medical cannabis, it's like the 4th of July. Um, these are things that people recognize and they support. There's so much that's taken place in the various states uh, that it's not as coordinated and focused 
And so that's been uh, a, a bit of a challenge. Uh, but we're uh, to a point now where I think uh, that corner is being turned and it's been driven by local advocates, by the industry. Um, it's been driven by experience like you've uh, mentioned. States that have a robust medical marijuana have fewer opioid deaths by far. It's something that really helps people deal with depression, with pain, uh, chronic pain, uh, traumatic brain injury, the PTSD, epilepsy. It has made a huge difference in terms of uh, extreme nausea that comes from chemotherapy. I mean, across the board, this works and people know it. There's also, so Portland, I believe, passed uh, legalized psilocybin uh, for, for medical use. And uh, same thing there, we're seeing uh, either all, all sorts of psychedelics, whether it's uh, LSD, psilocybin, uh, and, and other drugs that are used to treat anything from PTSD. I know there's some trials of children on the, on the spectrum uh, that are using psychedelics as well, uh, all to, it seems to be great success. It, it, have you seen any legislation at all on, on a federal level to, to um, legalize any of the, these other scheduled, uh, scheduled, schedule one drugs, right? There is. Uh, some movement in that direction. Uh, the Oregon ballot measure approved it uh, in a clinical setting, and it's it's more of a, a trial. It's going to be an opportunity for us to really uh, evaluate its impact uh, with professionals who are trained. Uh, at the same time, Oregon passed a ballot measure that decriminalized the use of drugs. It didn't legalize it, but we weren't going to throw people in in jail. Uh, if uh, they were uh, using illicit drugs. Uh, prohibition hasn't worked. Uh, it, I mentioned the selective enforcement. And we think these two things, one is sort of being able to clinically examine the impact of psilocybin uh, in a, by professional therapists uh, to really uh, do this right and stop enforcing uh, in a draconian sense the prohibition uh, is I think the direction that we as a society need to go. The other thing that I think we're both passionate about is is uh, making sure that people who live in this country aren't hungry. Because of COVID, uh, it seems like we made some some pretty good gains. Uh, increased uh, SNAP funding by fifteen percent, community uh, eligibility, uh, community certification um, uh, is is much more robust. Um, there are plenty of anti hunger advocates that that believe that we cannot continue to just manage hunger. We can end hunger in this country. And I think what we saw during COVID is we saw these long lines in the news of people, um, you know, lined up for for hours waiting for food from local food pantries. And you know, I looked in those lines and I saw a lot of Mercedes and BMWs as well. And so these were people who were um, never in a million years thought that they would be um, on online waiting for for someone to to help them out. And so. I'm hopeful that there's a greater sense of empathy for people who are struggling um, because a lot of people who weren't found themselves in a really tough position. Do you think we can get the necessary funding to pretty much end hunger in, in this country? We, we almost did it back in the, in the, in the 70s, actually un, under Richard Nixon, helped to modernize you know, SNAP and WIC and school and lunch and pretty much get hunger under control until the 80s and, and then that all changed. But do, do you think we have an opportunity to to really end hunger? You know, Tom, I really do. And you've been in the middle of a variety of conversations that point to the ways that we can do this. First and foremost, we talked earlier about good healthy food uh, is a way to control healthcare costs. We 
we ought to be able to reach a point where uh, the big healthcare providers can write prescriptions for healthy food. Right. There, 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 is a, there is a prescription drug plan. It's actually a uh, wholesome wave is a big proponent of that. And there are doctors now who are writing prescriptions for healthy fruits and vegetables. And, and it works. By the same token, what's happened in terms of providing uh, food for our children during the, this COVID crisis, we've recognized, well, just let's just expand the school nutrition program. And let's not worry about, you know, kids paying a dollar 19 cents that they the family may or may not have for just do away with it in fact the bookkeeping is almost as expensive as what comes in make food a right uh, being able to expand that awareness uh, kids learn better if they if they're adequately nourished right there was a, there was a study done by Deloitte and no kid hungry that when school would kids get breakfast in first period math scores go up by 17% any teacher out there, if, if they can, can snap their finger and make math course go up by 17% just by feeding kids in first period, and in first period, not, not before the bell, because before the bell, a lot of the kids don't go. Sometimes transportation's not working that early. Plus, there's a stigma involved in getting to school early and get, you know, being that kid. And so this is documented. All these things that come together, Tom, in terms of the food supply chain is healthier for the environment and for the community. Uh, being able to engage the economic power, uh, being able to deal with the health consequences, what you just said in terms of improved school performance. When you tie all these things together, of course we can afford it. Of course we can afford it. Often you hear people say, well, we should have a businessman running the country. And, and you know, it sounds it sounds good. It, it, it didn't work out that well. But, you know, again, the last guy wasn't really a businessman either. Um, but but here's the, here's the problem with that is that because of our, our two and four year election cycle, six years in terms of senators, most corporate CEOs plan for five, 10 and 15 years. And so you never get a sense that the government is looking that far down the road. And so you you couldn't run this as a business because it doesn't it the election cycle doesn't run like a business. Um, that and the fact that um, to really make all of the things that we're talking about happen, we need to have a functioning democracy. Do you think that we're at risk of losing our democracy? I mean, you look at all these voting right acts that are being pushed back. I mean, do do, do you think we can lose it? Well, I'll tell you, I was here January sixth. Uh, and I think people now recognize that we came closer to losing it than people understood. Uh, but part of what we're talking about here with this conversation, Tom, are things that really bring people together rather than divide them. Having healthy, well-fed kids, supporting family farmers, being able to deal with the nutritional needs as well as what the environmental benefits. Uh, these are all things that are historic, traditional values. They are things that if we break them out and talk to people, they support them. These are things that do not need to divide us. Uh, certainly there are problems with industrial agriculture, but if we start providing a healthy, sustainable, regenerative alternative, I think that there is the potential of bringing people together on this alternative vision that is cheaper, that is healthier, uh, is better for the environment and better for our families. And I think there's great power. And you've been part of this movement uh, with some of the leading chefs in the country to be able to make these points, to be able to 
get food to kids, be able to keep restaurant supply chains. These are things that have been given more attention in the last 16 months than I think than ever before. So I'm excited about this to uh, strengthen communities, strengthen democracy, uh, and strengthen families. We'll be back with more Citizen Chef. Let's hit it. Give me a vacation. Vacation. Give me a wave. Surfing. Give me a city tour. The trolley. Give me animals. The zoo. Give me some sea life. <laughs> Give me museums. Park. Give me a woo. What's that spell? San Diego! If you're happy and you know it, San Diego is the place to show it. Book your family vacation at sandiego.org. Funded in part with the City of San Diego Tourism Marketing District Assessment Funds. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. This is it, your moment. This is your time to make your comeback with Purdue Global. When you come back with a Purdue Global degree, you create opportunity for yourself, your family, and your future. It's a degree you can be proud of, a degree that employers will trust and respect. Purdue Global offers working adults like you over 175 flexible degree programs to meet your specific career goals. These include associate, bachelor's, master's, and doctoral degrees and certificates. Purdue Global degree programs range from nursing to business to communication and more. Whatever your interest, we have the degree that will move you forward. You have the knowledge. You have the experience. Now it's time to get credit for the work you've done and earn the recognition you deserve with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. You know you're worth it. We do too. So don't wait another second to get the degree that will take your career to the next level. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. Listen, Earl, this has been, it's been great talking to you. Um, unfortunately, when I was in Portland shooting uh, Top Chef, I was under quarantine, uh, so I couldn't get out and, and, and break bread with you. And, and, uh, but I am looking forward to seeing you in person uh, soon. The one thing I wanted to ask you about is, uh, uh, you know, whenever somebody meets uh, meets you, th- the first thing they'll probably see is the bike lap- lapel pin that you wear. I mean, you, right under your congressional pin, you have a, um, it's like a wire bicycle. T- tell me about that, that wire bicycle that you wear on your lapel. Well, I started, uh, when I was Portland's Commissioner of Public Works, I, I started a, a pretty aggressive bike program. Uh, we started distributing these little pins. Uh, when I came to Congress, uh, I, I brought bikes instead of a car. Um, I started handing out uh, the bike pins. Uh, I'm aggressively bike partisanship, uh, bike partisan. Uh, everybody's got a, a bike story. And it's, you know, it's like food. Food brings people together. Well, cycling 
is something that uh, everybody's got a cycling story. It's uh, good for families. It's good for tourism. It's, uh, so the pin was a symbol of that. Um, and it's a nice uh, conversation starter. Uh, people uh, like the pin. I'll take it off my lapel and give it to them. Uh, right. You, uh, you gave me one. I think I have a, a, a neon green one. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I think part of you know what you're good at doing and part of what we need to do a better job is to find ways, whether it's a, uh, whether it's a, a bike pin or it's a comic book, uh, The Fight for Food. Yeah, let's talk about the Fight for Food book. I, I wanted to bring that up, actually. I'm glad you, you, you held that up. Um, so this was your way of, of taking the farm bill, which is a pretty dense um, bill, um, and making it simple and easy for people to understand. You know, why, why was that so important? One of our challenges in terms of getting the food policies that are right for America uh, is that the farm bill itself is hopelessly complex, purposely so. Your friend Marion Nussel wrote that great essay, The Farm Bill Drove Me Crazy. You know, she's this famous nutrition professor. She tried to teach a course on the farm bill and she gave it up. She said, you know, nobody understands it. Uh, and so what I did was boil this down into a little illustrated guide. So, so we're, we're, on, we're on Zoom right now and, and Earl is holding up his, 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 his book. And it's a, it's, so the farm bill is, is hundreds of thousands of pages. It's, it's more than a doorstop. And Earl boiled that down to a, a small pamphlet. It's what, about four by three and uh, maybe 20 pages. Um, and, and it's all boiled out. It's all in there. Well, uh, part of what we need to do is demystify this process. Uh, and that's why I love working with you and, and other professionals, uh, is you get to the heart of the thing, what matters, what tastes good, what's sustainable. How it, and so what we did was just boil this down in terms, we labeled it the fight for food. We gave a short description uh, in a page. Uh, we have big graphics, you know, that you deserve better, uh, a better farm bill. We talk about commodity programs, crop insurance, uh, farm subsidies. When you boil it down to the essentials, uh, you really can do this in about 16 pages in things that are simple enough that even a member of Congress can understand. And that's, I think, is what I think is so, so powerful as the work that we do with food and nutrition is boiling it down to the basics. And when we do that, um, we don't have to make it hopelessly complex. We can talk about investing in what we care about, uh, making it easier. And this was my contribution for people to understand what was at stake. Well, I was, I was happy to take a few cases and, and I had them <laughs> at the podium of my restaurant. I would hand them out to people. And uh, um, it, sometimes I got some interesting looks, <laughs> but uh, some people some, some people got back to me and said it was really helpful um, and they really enjoyed it. So, well, listen, Earl, it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you. I'm not scheduled to get down to either Portland or, or, or Washington anytime soon, but uh, um, if you find yourself in New York and, and you want to you grab a, a meal, let me know. I will do it, my friend. Thank you very much. Take care. Thanks. Thanks. Have a good day. You too. Listen, that, that conversation was, was wide ranging, um, but in a way it really wasn't. We, we covered a lot of ground and uh, it's, there's a lot of complex questions and there's a lot of behind the scenes hand wringing to, to make this happen. But it's, it, it, it is pretty, pretty straightforward and simple. 
I think often politicians are maligned. Um, uh, we hear about the corruption and we hear about the pettiness, but um, I actually, you know, think members of, of Congress like Earl Blumenauer, they're, they're there because they're just trying to make the country better for, for their constituents and for all Americans. Um, and so it's, it's, it's great to have a member that is so plugged in, especially when it comes to the, you know, the access of food, the environment, and, and how to make it fair for everybody. Thanks again to Congressman Earl Blumenau for spending some time with us. And as always, a special thanks to A Place at the Table. And thank you for listening. Citizen Chef is executive produced by Christopher Hasiotis, produced by Gabby Collins, and researched by Lillian Holman. Citizen Chef has a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts like this, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite shows. 